We'd love to hear your thoughts about the Yamaha podcast. Please feel free to send your comments to bandandorchestra at yamaha.com. Thank you for your support of Yamaha products. With a commitment to innovative instrument designs and an industry-leading five-year warranty, we are confident that you will be able to depend on Yamaha. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode featuring Yamaha flute artist and Los Angeles studio veteran Jim Walker. For more information on Jim and his career, please visit www.jimwalkerflute.com. This interview covers Jim's studio career for such notable composers as John Williams and Mark Isham. Basically, if you've been to a movie in the last 20 years, whether you knew it or not, you've listened to Jim Walker's flute sound. His impressive resume of movie projects includes over 650 different films. In addition to his soundtrack work, Jim formed the innovative group Free Flight in the 1980s, a group whose sound can only be described as breaking all musical boundaries. Free Flight was a natural outgrowth of Jim's drive to be a diverse musician. Jim has performed on Yamaha flutes for over 25 years. He's participated in numerous development projects during that time, and Yamaha flutes have become a key element in his trademark sound. In talking about Yamaha flutes, Jim comments, I love being able to honestly recommend the full line to students and fellow professionals. Again, for more information on Jim and his career, please visit www.jimwalkerflute.com. Sitting with Jim Walker in his three-year-old Chevy Suburban, doing what I think you do a fair amount of, and that's driving. A ton of driving. It's just I look at it as another one of my moonlighting jobs, and this one takes anywhere from 10 to 20 hours a week. In between driving to a session, driving to USC to teach, driving to the airport, uh, I heard a story once that you used to practice your piccolo while sitting in traffic. Is that true, Jim? Uh, yes, but actually less when I sat in traffic as opposed to when I was actually driving because when you're sitting, people do see you. <laughs> when you're driving, people don't tend to look over and see what's going on. Your career of studio work is incredibly impressive. I, I would imagine people listening to this have heard you play again and again and again and had no idea that it's your your sound. What do you... What particular sessions do you feel is some of the best representation of your playing? One of the first ones I did when I left the LA Philharmonic uh, was a John Williams score for a Mel Gibson movie called The River. That was really a, a beautiful flute feature. Uh, I'll just go down the list of ones that I've really enjoyed. Uh, a few John Williams ones. Uh, Amistad, Seven Years in Tibet, recently Memoirs of a Geisha, uh, the Terminal, uh, all of those, most of those were ethnic flute features for me rather than solo flute. And I just love the way he writes, the way he writes, uh, the way he runs a session. Those are notable, uh, not John Williams scores that are really fun for me. Uh, Mark Isham uh, did the score for a movie called Nell. I had a lot of really big features in that, both flute, alto flute, and ethnic flutes. And recently he just did the score to Eight Below, and I had a lot of features in that one.
life of a studio musician is 90% boredom and 10% sheer panic. <laughs> That's, you know, I, I truly believe that. I've heard some of my colleagues say, can you believe that people would actually say that about our business? Well, you know, it's, it's probably hyperbole and, and overblown, but a lot of the time in a session you actually are sitting waiting for a composer and a director to come to grips with changes they're making in the music. So a lot of people are doing crossword puzzles and just reading a book or whatever while the conductor isn't even on the podium. So to the degree that you're not playing music, that is a little boring. And then occasionally you're playing music that in fact is not particularly challenging. It is background music that doesn't demand a lot. But then, you know, out of the blue, on measure 135, all of a sudden you have this very exposed solo that might be in the top part of your register, uh, very user-unfriendly, and you have to rise to the occasion. So those would be the panic moments. Uh, you know, one of the movies I worked on a year or so ago was called Van Helsing, uh, an Alan Silvestri score. Wonderful writer. And most of the soundtrack in the movie is just power music here and there. And then all of a sudden, there's this break in the music and this 30-second unaccompanied flute solo. And we recorded that like 10 times, over and over again, changing the timing on it. This note a little bit longer, uh, do this a little louder, that. And every time, you just have to tell yourself, okay, this is the first time I'm doing this piece. I've got to do it well, because it might be the last time. And you don't want to be the one who blows it so that they have to re-record it. instruments because it, it seems like that's a fair amount of your profile as a studio musician nowadays has the demands of the studio musician changed or has the music changed well I will say that in the last 15 years the the voice of the ethnic flute has really become very popular in, in film scoring and it was a fluke that I did it I uh, the first movie that I played anything ethnic on was the color purple and I forget when that was but it could have 15 or 20 years ago when that was made and one day we showed up and there were two recorder parts I was playing somewhere deep in the section and uh, I think the recorder parts were for fourth and fifth flute or something like that Sheridan Stokes is a great legendary flute flutist in the studios and also a great ethnic flutist had an extra recorder and so he and I are playing this little recorder duo and I didn't know how to play the recorder. I knew it was kind of like the flute, but I didn't even have recorder lessons in public school. We had flutophone, which was much easier. So uh, lo and behold, here we are. We're recording this thing, and it wasn't hard to look up and see that there were television cameras rolling. 60 Minutes had come to, to record the session, and so we're 
<laughs> we're recording and all of a sudden Sheridan and I are standing up cameras are right up our instruments and we start playing and you hear this amazingly horrible sound coming out and it turns out it was me because my right hand was one hole completely off so I'm wiggling fingers and all you're hearing is just wolf tones coming out of the recorder. Did that footage make the final 60 minutes I did. Cut? I was unwilling to look so. <laughs> one of the highlights of my career was doing the Paul McCartney uh, Oscar performance and just to fast forward through that ultimately the instrument he wanted me to play was not one of my expensive Grenadilla penny whistles but he wanted the look of a tin whistle that I had bought for 50 cents at a garage sale. That must have been an amazing experience. What happened, what went through your mind when you got the call that, you know, by the way Paul McCartney wants you to play with him? It was pretty flabbergasting. Um, I was working on a movie for Sandy de Crescent, who is the contractor who does 90% of the movies and tends to give me the call on most of her projects. And uh, on a Thursday, 10 days before the Academy Awards, she said, Jim, I think uh, we may need you to do the Oscars uh, on ethnic flutes, and it looks like it'll be with Paul McCartney. I said, whoa. Uh, yeah, would you do it? Are you available? Yes, I'd love to do that. So she said, well, his music director will get in touch with you. I actually didn't hear from the guy till the following Sunday, so it's three days later, and I was driving in this car, I remember, and uh, so the music director says, yeah, we hear you play the ethnic flutes and that you're, you know, former L.A. Philharmonic flutist and all this stuff, yeah. Uh, what do you look like? <laughs> So I said, well, I'm kind of like a poor man's James Galway, Kenny Rogers look-alike. And, uh, you know, and do you have some jeans? Yes, I can wear jeans. <laughs> said, because Paul wants us to look like three street musicians, kind of just hanging out, got together. And uh, so they said the first rehearsal will be Tuesday afternoon. And that night I got home and the copy department for the Academy Awards had done a takedown. They had created a chart and had a cassette recording of the piece, which I'd never heard. It was Vanilla Sky that he had composed. And so that night I started getting together various instruments that might fit what he had done. As it turns out on the original recording, he did the penny whistle himself. Uh, the opening was played on a synthesized pan flute, uh, just keyboard. And uh, so I got a battery of instruments together and memorized the chart so that by Tuesday afternoon I wouldn't look like an idiot. And uh, it's, it's, it was an audition. I mean, clearly, he would have, if I hadn't delivered the goods, he would have said, you know, it sounds fantastic. I had something else in mind. So, you know, wow. we won't be doing it. But what a great experience. It was unbelievable. It really was a wonderful experience in every way.
said somewhat how the group Free Flight was born out of the, the need to do something different outside the norms that was diverse yet still maintaining the traditional flute sound? Absolutely. I organized the band when I was, I think, 38. And that's over 25 years ago. And it was after my third year in the LA Philharmonic. And so when I came out here, I was 33, started that job and confronted the fact that I had never been a good improviser. I just, I had become essentially a very unidirectional classical flutist teacher. And I realized at that point, I wanted to go back to my high school days of listening to jazz and actually trying to learn how to improvise. So having the classical background and being primarily a classical musician, but having this kind of jazz running through my head and developing the vocabulary finally, Free Flight was a fairly natural outgrowth of that. revolutionary. I don't think flute music had ever been played like that. What was the initial response by people? It was fantastic. First of all, I was still in the LA Philharmonic and the people within the orchestra, once they heard about it, were very, you know, very generally supportive and thought it was a very cool thing. In, in those days, there were probably seven or eight of my contemporaries in the LA Phil who had a similar background to me, had played high school jazz, even in college, but had then focused on their classical chops to get a job, and it was kind of something that was in the closet. And so a lot of them got a little bit of a vicarious thrill out of seeing it all go down. What did flute purists have to say about it? You know, generally, I think most of them weren't threatened by it because it was, it was so different, it was something they hadn't thought about doing. I think there were probably 10% to 5 to 10% of the purists who were very offended by the idea that a symphony musician would be jumping around on stage wearing a costume with a matching blue flute. <laughs> you know, I got a few <laughs> stares with that one, but um, you know, it was, it was an incredible outlet for me from the beginning. and. The first year, what pretty much made the group happen was that we took every Monday night in a jazz club in North Hollywood called Dante's. It was a great, great club through the 70s and into the 80s where the best West Coast jazz players would hang out and play. So almost every night of the week you could hear a really good player, sometimes fresh bands, sometimes the old stars. And we took Monday nights for the better part of a year to develop a book and for me to actually develop 
my public jazz playing. And I'd say within six weeks to two months, we got a real buzz going in kind of the Los Angeles area. And at the end of the second month, we actually got a record contract. A producer came in, heard the band, and said, I want to record this. I want to record it live to two-track. I want to go to a really good acoustic hall. And we were very excited by that idea. Is there one particular song or one particular free flight recording that you think kind of epitomized the the early beginnings of the sound of free flight? Probably so. The the first recording we did was was a great outing, but it didn't really find much commercial success because it really never got distribution. The second recording we did was one of a package of three that we got through the Palo Alto records, which was a very strong jazz record company in the early 80s. Herb Wong was the president and he he really was a bit of a visionary and was willing to go to bat and try to make it happen. So our first record was called Free Flight, the Jazz Classical Union. And uh, it had a really interesting mix of classical and jazz originals. Uh, we did some Dave Brubeck. It was, it was a good cross-section and to this day uh, people still enjoy that record. as a player. It has also provided me with a constant touch with today's young flutist uh, in traveling and in recruiting and then in auditioning students. I'm constantly aware of basically what the state of the art is of the 18 to 25 year old flutist. And it's wonderfully scary to see how good more and more players are playing. I don't know if the best players are better than the best players of 20 and 30 years ago are, but I do know that there are more good players today than there were, were 20 years ago. In addition to your solo and touring activities, how do you how do you balance teaching with that? Well, I'm blessed with a pretty high energy level and I'm blessed with kind of the, the hunger and the joy to really work a studio, to have a studio, to have built a studio. I look at, I'm very much a sports junkie and I look at what I've done with my class is the same thing that a 
you know, what Jim Beheim does with his basketball team at Syracuse that Mike Krzyzewski does at Duke. I mean, I've actively been trying to build a reputation so that the best young players are willing to consider USC as an option. So I have a lot of pride in the fact that we do have a very strong class every year now and that I get to hear many of the very best young flutists who are interested in coming to study in California. that I just had in the background, uh, me playing with D-Drum, that will be the most recent recording. Brian Pizzoni is a remarkable pianist who's been playing with Free Flight for the last six or seven years. Uh, he and I are thinking about recording some of the classical flute literature. We're also thinking about recording the music of Mike Mower, who's a great British composer uh, who has probably done the best crossover classical jazz Latin pop composition of, of anybody uh, and he's written a lot of music for flute so we're th we've been talking about doing that kind of recording there actually may be another free flight recording there is one unreleased recording that uh, I did with Mike Garson it was actually a Yamaha disc clavier project but that has never been released as a commercial recording uh, I've got that uh, Mike Garson and I also did kind of a new age recording called Tranquility that we've never released. That's also another really good one.